Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, I am really excited to uh, bring the word this morning. If you've got your Bible, you can flip to Luke chapter 20. We've took the past couple of weeks off. Uh, We've been in a series in Luke, if you've been around for two and a half years or so. Um, And we're starting to get to the end. Um, We took the last two weeks off and did did a couple of different things. Um, But we're picking it back up this week at the end of Luke chapter 20. Um, And so just a quick refresher, since it's been a few weeks. um, What we've seen is these last several sections in Luke's gospel have been points of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. the, The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Um, many of them have come to him asking questions, trying to provoke trouble, trying to trap him uh, falsely um, so that they can accuse him, so that they can hand him over, get him arrested, and get him out of the picture. And so what we're going to see today is kind of the, the closing section um, of this. Um, we'll start reading in Luke chapter 20, verse 41. Um, this is... All the the religious leaders have been asking him questions, and now Jesus turns the tables on them and asks them a question. And so Luke 20, 41 says this. But he, that's Jesus, said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? Um, The son of David was a common name for the Messiah at the time. Uh, The Jewish belief was that the Messiah was going to come in and uh, was going to be like another David. He was going to establish... Uh, a, a new kingdom of Israel, put Israel back on top, get rid of the pagan Romans and, and all these um, pagan influences in their culture. And so Son of David was an expression that th- this Messiah is going to come in and he's going to be David 2.0. Um, he's going to get rid of all the bad guys. He's going to put us back on top and, and bring in God's kingdom. Um, so often, we saw a couple chapters ago in Luke 18, a beggar cried out to Jesus and called him Son of David, um, basically saying, recognizing that Jesus was the Messiah Um, So, that's where this is coming from. He says, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord, that's God the Father, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Um, There's a lot going on in this little section here, uh, but we're really going to actually spend the bulk of our time today looking at the next section just two quick points. Um, what Jesus is doing here is twofold. He's highlighting his divinity. Um, he, he's highlighting the fact that the Messiah is not just the son of David. He's not just a man descended from David, but he's also the son of God. Um, and he points that out. He says, David called him my Lord in this prophetic psalm. He said, God the Father said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Um, and David was referencing the coming Messiah there. So Jesus is basically claiming not just to be man, but to be God. He's, he's claiming divinity. Uh, point two, and this is probably a little bit more important based on the past couple sections, Jesus is really embarrassing the scribes here. He's, he's really highlighting the fact that they don't know Scripture. And the thing was, Scripture was the one thing that the scribes claimed to know well. Uh, and, and so what we really see here is this intense kind of face-off uh, because there's nothing more embarrassing than being called out and shown to be wrong on the one thing you consider yourself an expert in. Um, if that's ever happened to you, you know how humiliating that is. And in a, a culture like this, an ancient Middle Eastern culture, that would have been an incredible um, shame. It would have been a real humiliation. 
Um, and so Jesus here is highlighting their ignorance of the scriptures. So we've got that question, uh, but like I said, we're going to focus on this next section for most of our time this morning. Uh, what we got is Jesus kind of tops off what he's just asked. He, he's proven their ignorance of the scriptures, and it's almost like Jesus gives a little sucker punch here. Um, it's, we'll see, it's like he leans over to his disciples while, while the scribes and all the people are still right there and says, hey, don't be like these guys. They don't know what's going on. Um, beware of them. And so let's, let's see in verse 45. He says, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So observation number one this morning about this section. Jesus condemns the scribes. Right at the end there, he says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Um, And he's obviously warning his disciples, don't be like the scribes. The question is why? why. Why does Jesus say they're going to receive this condemnation? Here's why. It's, it's because everything the scribes did, they did hypocritically. Um, they longed for the praise of men. They wanted to be adored. They wanted to be worshipped and, and, and thought of as the best of the best. And so that led to this, this pretense or this pretending, this, this hypocrisy in their actions. Um, what is hypocrisy? Um, in Matthew 6, Jesus actually defines it for us. He's talking about the hypocrites. He's talking about how to pray and how to fast. And he says, don't be like the hypocrites. He says, they act to be praised by others, and they act to be seen by others. Um, A dictionary definition of hypocrisy is this. Um, It says, hypocrisy is falsely claiming to possess virtuous characteristics that one actually lacks. So it's claiming to have these, these good characteristics in my life that I don't actually have. It's pretending. Uh, it's putting on a false face. Um, the word hypocrisy actually comes from an old word um, that was used to describe actors. Um, and, and that's where it comes from. I'm acting. I'm pretending to be something that I'm not. And so just that's important for us to grasp. Hypocrisy is not just failing in admitting our failings. We all fail. We all mess up. Uh, that's why we need a savior. Hypocrisy is failing and then trying to brush it over, sweep it under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen, pretend like I'm, I'm good, pretend like everything's all well and good. And for me, uh, just one kind of funny example was um, I used to work in an auto electric store, um, and this isn't anything spiritual, uh, but I was totally being a hypocrite. Um, I, I started when I was 15. I worked till I was 20 or 21 there, all through my later years of high school and college. Uh, and I know absolutely nothing about cars. Not a thing. But my job, I, I, I was the first guy inside the door. Um, I, I was the inventory guy. And so I stood up front and I would box stuff and ship stuff out. And uh, all these customers would come in, these old dudes who have been working on cars for 50 years, classic cars, or um, guys who work construction with heavy equipment. And these guys would come in and they'd start talking about, yeah, my car, you know, my, my truck's acting up, and it's got this problem, and, and here's my starter, and I think maybe the brushes have gone bad, although it could be the, the alternator. So they start talking all this lingo, and I'm standing there like, huh? Uh, but, but I couldn't do that. I couldn't pretend like I didn't know anything. So I got really good at putting on a face and just nodding, and yeah, yeah, you, that could be right. Or, or have you thought about this? knowing not at all what I was talking about. I'm just waiting. I was 
the way I describe it is I was like a quarterback um, who can't throw the ball. So these guys would come in, and I would wait until the, I had the opportunity to hand it off to someone who actually knew what they were talking about. Um, but that's hypocrisy. I knew nothing about what was going on, but I pretended like I did. I pretended like I was in the know. Um, on a spiritual level or a deeper level, um, it's when we're, we pretend we're something we're not. That's hypocrisy. Um, and so Jesus is calling out the scribes here to his disciples. He's saying, beware of them. And there's a couple indicators in this text that talk about why they're hypocrites. So number one, Jesus says they like to walk around in long robes. Um, in that day and age, these long robes would differentiate them from um, the laborers. Um, it's kind of like a, a guy showing up at the steel mill wearing a, a tuxedo. Like, that dude doesn't do hard labor. Uh, he, the way they dress made that clear. And so the, the way that they dress showed that they lived this life of leisure and ease, and they're, they're not a common laborer like the rest of the people. It set them apart. Um, additionally, um, he says they love the greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats of the house. Uh, these guys are basically, they think they're big shots. Um, they want the red carpet treatment. They want the VIP seats, the VIP treatment. Um, and, and that's the scribes. And then there's a couple at the end, two kind of more intense indictments. He says they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So on a religious, spiritual level, these guys are fakes as well. Um, they're the ones standing up front, you know, long five, ten-minute prayers. Um, but it's really just hot air because there's no heart behind it. They don't mean anything. It's just for show, just so people would admire them. Um, devouring widows' houses, that probably means that they were taking advantage of widows. Um, widows were pretty much the most destitute people at that time. They had no means of income or anything. Um, and, and the scribes would actually come along, and they would help kind of settle their estate after the, the husband had died. Um, and they would charge these exorbitant fees and, and really take advantage of them. So that's probably what Jesus is referencing here. Um, but observation number two, number one, remember, was the scribes were condemned for their actions. Number two is this. If there's one thing Jesus hates, it's hypocrisy. Um, and we've seen that throughout Luke. We've seen that if you read through any of the four Gospels where you're looking at Jesus' life, you'll see consistently the people Jesus calls out the most and has the harshest things to say about is the hypocrites. It's the leaders. It's the ones who are pretending to be something that they're not. And over and over and over, he's calling them out, saying, calling them on their actions, um, woe to you, and, and calling down condemnations. The question is why. Why is Jesus so so intense about this hypocrisy? Why does he hate it so much? When John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus knows what is in man, um, remember, Jesus is the Son of God. He, 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 he's God incarnate. Um, Hebrews 4.13 says that we're all naked and exposed before the one to whom we must give an account. Um, and so the issue is this. The hypocrites are pretending to be something they're not, but Jesus, it's like he's got x-ray vision. He sees right through it. He sees their hearts. He knows that they're full of, full of it. Um, and he hates it. He calls them out on it over and over. But this is where it gets a little more personal. Because the reality is, as I look at my life, not just, not just at the auto electric store, but in all areas of my life, I'm constantly a hypocrite. I'm, I'm constantly doing things because I want people to approve of my actions. And for me, growing up in church, that was the, the source of all sorts of problems in my life is I wanted people's approval. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be admired and looked up to. Um, and to this day, like, the Lord has, has done a lot of work in my life, but 
my life is shot through with this, this hypocrisy, with this tendency to perform, to pretend. And if, if that resonates with you guys at all, why? Why are we so quick to be hypocrites? Why are we so quick to pretend or to put on a, a smiling face and pretend like everything's great when it's actually not? As I thought about that this week, this is, this is what I, I think the answer is. I think it's because we know we don't measure up, but we feel like we should. We feel like we're expected to live a certain way or to do something, and we don't do it, and so we start to pretend. And, and if you think about it, the church is actually the worst for this. And, and, and you hear that all the time. When you're talking to people who don't go to church, who, who, who don't know the Lord, they say, oh, I could never go to church. If I set foot in a church building... I'll get struck by lightning. It's because they recognize that there's this high standard in the church, and and the standard is perfection, of course. And and so that's why in church, in Christian circles, we're really quick to be hypocrites, because we know the bar's set pretty high. Uh, One kind of illustration to draw out what this means, uh, Share the Rock basketball camp we do every summer. Uh, We do it over at the Lincoln Center, and if you've been there, there's four courts. You walk in, um, and every morning this past summer, you would find me before the camp started and the kids got there at the far court. Um, and my brother and a couple friends and I sometimes, um, we'd be putting on a little dunk competition, uh, just a little showcase for the kids who were there, throwing it down, slamming it all over the place. Uh, but here's the thing. We were stuck on that court, even though the other three were empty, because the hoop on that court was about eight feet tall. Uh, the hoop on the other three courts was at 10 feet, and there's no way we're putting on a dunk showcase there. But this is the reality of, of having a bar set high. I looked really good when the hoop was low. Uh, we were throwing it down two-hand, 360s. It looked great. But you put us somewhere where the bar, the hoop, is a little bit higher, and all of a sudden you see our inadequacy. You see a uh, white boy can't jump. Uh, you see there's a problem. And it's like this spiritually, too. Uh, we, when the bar is low, when, you know, if all I have to do is not murder anyone, uh, not steal anything, maybe I can do that. But when you put the bar at perfect, you see how small I am. The, the bar is way up there. It's, it's infinitely high. You see how small and unable I am to meet that requirement. So the church is the worst for this because the bar is the highest. And I'm really not saying anything you guys don't know. Um, I, I know that. If you're here and you're a man, a husband, a father, uh, John actually, when we were, we were praying this morning, he mentioned stepping up, this 10-week curriculum most of the guys in this church did. And it was great. The Lord really used it to shape and to start something in our church, I believe. But the risk is that now that stepping up is over, we talked about things like taking initiative and having a vision and a plan for your home and your family. Uh, but that's all good. But it also means there could be a lot of pressure on you now as a man in this church. You need to have a vision. If you don't, well, you better get one together. You better fake like you do. Um, It could mean this as a a man. It could mean there's pressure to make a certain amount of money, to, to provide a certain lifestyle for your family. And if you're not making it, well, you better fake like you do or else people won't approve. People will think lowly of you. Uh, these pressures are all over the place. For moms and wives and women, um, I was talking with Mindy this week, and she's actually already feeling some crazy pressure. 
you guys have pressure, if you're a mother, to have kids that are well-behaved, right? They've got to be intelligent. Uh, they need to be cute because of Facebook and Pinterest, and there's going to be thousands of people looking at their pictures. Uh, they need to be well-dressed and all these things that people didn't have to think about 50 years ago. Uh, not only that, you also need to be really homey and crafty because of Pinterest. You've got to be able to make homemade decorations and picture frames and all those things. Um, you've got all of these pressures. You have to be a good cook, all these things. The world says, this is what you need to do. This is what's popular. This is where you find your worth and your value. You guys are feeling pressure all over the place. Mindy, we just got married seven months ago, and I have no idea when kids are going to come, but she's already feeling the pressure to be this perfect mom. Kids aren't even in the picture. And so, women, you've probably actually got it harder than us guys, I would say, because of things like Facebook and Pinterest and all these influences that are saying this is how a woman should be. So that's all just to highlight this pressure. Um, And as Christians, we've even got this worse pressure because we've got to pray and read our Bible four hours a day or we're nothing, right? We're we're unholy, we're we're unrighteous. Um, We feel like there's this spiritual pressure to perform as well. All of these things lend to this um, tendency to be a hypocrite. Either we perform or we pretend. It's one of the two. And most of us can't perform, can't meet all these requirements, so we pretend. But here's the problem, or the danger. We, we live and we know we don't measure up, right? If, if we're quiet and we look at our lives, we know that there's all sorts of pressures. Ultimately, the important ones are the ones in God's word. But there's also all sorts of pressures coming in from every different place. And we know we don't measure up in all the ways we should. We know there's all sorts of shortcomings in our lives. But the danger is we, we begin to fake it a little bit. And then we keep pretending, and we keep pretending, and we don't let people close, because if they get too close, they might see what's going on. They might see we're fakes. Uh, there's this book called Red Like Blood, uh, and there's this little section in here. I, I quote to people all the time. I, I, I made Mindy read it. Um, one of you guys should borrow this book after this service, and then someone else should borrow it. Um, it's really good, and for real, if, if you want to read it. It's all about um, this guy, these two guys, and they're um, coming to realize God's grace, the reality of it. Um, it's phenomenal. Um, but I'm going to read just a little paragraph in here, because I think it really speaks to what we're talking about this morning. <clears throat> Here's what he says. He says, All of us long to be known but we just can't muster up the courage to out ourselves. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You felt deep down that longing to be loved and that fear of being known. It is like being made to live in water and not being able to swim. If you really know me, will you love me? I doubt it because, put in your place, I wouldn't love me either. I long for the experience of really being loved And yet all I give is the image of myself I hope others will find most attractive. The love I feel from others is muted simply because I know that the person they love is not the person I really am. Inside of me are smaller and smaller me's until there's one that's so small and so homely it never feels the love it craves. I merely pretend to be me so I can pretend to be loved and I starve. So friends, like this morning, are, does that resonate with you at all? Um, are, are you starving like this guy talks? Is there this pressure to 
put forth this certain image that you think will be accepted and, and loved, um, and maybe it is, maybe it is accepted, but even, even as it's loved, you don't really feel the love because it's not really you. It's, it's just a projection of, of what you'd like to be like or, or what you think people expect. It, if that resonates with you guys at all, if, if there's this pressure, then this is the good news for us this morning. In Jesus, we measure up. Bottom line, in Christ, we all measure up. Um, doesn't matter what your past is. Doesn't matter what, what you used to do for a living. Doesn't matter your standard of living. Doesn't matter whether you've killed, stolen, or, or worse. Um, whatever the problem is, if you are in Jesus, the truth is that you measure up. You, you meet the standard. The bar has been met. Here's what I think my mother actually mentioned this earlier when she, she, she spoke during worship. Romans 5, 7, and 8 says this. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that is the gospel. It's that we didn't meet meet the bar. We did not measure up. And God loved us enough to die for us so that now we do measure up. In, in Jesus, we've met the standard. Romans 6 says this. It's, it says, we were buried and we were raised with Christ. That is, we, 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 we were, when Jesus died, it's as if we died. When Jesus was raised, it's as if we were raised. He says this, so we might walk in newness of life. And so what we see is really pressure or, or hypocrisy says, you're messed up, so pretend to be something you're not. But the gospel says this, it says, you're messed up, but you've got a new identity. So now, learn to live like that. Learn to live out of your new identity. And, and this makes all the difference in the world for how we live. All of a sudden, it's not oh, there's all these commands I got to keep, you know, I, I got to do this, I need to read my Bible four hours a day, I, gotta, I, I can't steal, I can't do this, I can't do that. No, that, that pressure is gone to perform because there's no need to perform to, to be accepted. All of a sudden, we've got this new identity where I, I want to read my Bible. I, I've been adopted as a child of God, so I want to get to know my Father. I, I'm, I'm loved, I'm accepted, and so... I don't want to do things that would upset my father. I don't want to dishonor his name by, by the way I conduct myself. So this changes everything. Um, there's one pastor, he was talking about marriage, and this is what he wrote. He said, To be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything else. It liberates us from our hypocrisy, and it humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And if if you're married, you know that this is the reality of marriage. And, and this, is, this is an ideal marriage, a perfect marriage. It doesn't always play out this way in our lives because we all still, still struggle with sinful, selfish tendencies. But the reality of marriage, and, and I've been learning this over the last seven months, is when you get married, two lives become one. And all of a sudden, you were doing your own thing, fairly independent, no one's too close, you can keep it at arm's length, but you get married and another sinful person comes in the closest proximity possible to your life. And all of a sudden, it's really hard to keep up an image. It's really hard to cover up all those flaws 24-7, 365. It's really difficult. But this is the beautiful thing about marriage because if, if I'm with Mindy and she's beginning to see my flaws and my struggles and my weaknesses, 
and she doesn't turn from them. She sees all the filth, and she doesn't flinch, but she loves me through it. All of a sudden, this pressure to perform is gone. This, this pressure to be a hypocrite, to, to pretend, is gone, because in my, my filth, in my weakness, in my struggles, I'm loved and I'm accepted. And so I don't need to meet Mindy's standards. Like, by God's grace, I will change, and I will find victory in those areas, but Mindy's love is not contingent on that. That love actually frees me up to, to, to work through those things. This is the reality of marriage, but this is also exactly what's happened for us each in Jesus. Like I said, Hebrews 4 talks about how each of us is naked and exposed before God. That means God sees everything. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but as we've worked through Luke, we've seen in chapter 9, we saw how Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die. He knew it was going to happen. But it says he set his face. He, he determined. He, he was on target. He wasn't going to change. He wasn't going off course. He set his face for Jerusalem. And here in the next couple weeks and months, we're going to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to see him in the garden the night before he dies in anguish. So, so much anguish. He's sweating drops of blood. He's saying, Lord, if you can take this from me, but at the end of it, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And then Jesus goes to the cross. He's betrayed. He's beaten. He's tortured. He goes to a cross, and he dies. And with his dying breath, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so what we see is that Jesus knows all of our filth, but he doesn't flinch. He, he, he doesn't turn around. He doesn't run away. Instead, he comes into our darkness, into the mess of our lives, the, the worst place, and he, instead of pulling back, he embraces us. He says, you're mine. I died for you. That, that's the gospel. That's why this is good news. That's why we don't need to pretend. We don't have to perform. Because Jesus has already come into all the crap and all the filth, and he's loved us, and he took it on himself. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, this is what separates Jesus from all other religions. This is what makes Christianity different. It's this idea of grace that Jesus, the Son of God, God and man, came in and he took our sins on him. He knew they were there. He didn't deserve them. He lived a perfect life. But he took them on him and died on a cross so that we could be made righteous. So that now God looks at us and he sees us as perfect. He sees us like we have Jesus' record instead of our own. And, and it's not just that God sees us and he's seeing this fake image. This is reality. Colossians 2 talks about how our sins were set aside and nailed to the cross. I am in Jesus. That means 2,000-something years ago, my sins were nailed to the cross, and they are no more. They, they don't exist anymore. I don't carry them. This is the gospel. And so for each of us as individuals... This has huge implications for our lives. Nothing is more important, nothing is more tangible than this, this, this reality of the cross, this reality of a Savior. But I don't just want to think about this in, in light of um, our individual lives. I want to think real quickly about what this means for us as a community. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because the reality is that hypocrisy kills community. If we're a bunch of hypocrites, there's no way we're gonna ha ever going to have any sense of community here. There's no way we can be a family 
if we're all projecting these fake images of what we think we should be like. Because when we're hypocritical, we, we have to keep people at a distance. It's, it's this constant stiff arm. Hey, stay back, because if you get too close, you're going to see the filth in my life. You're going to see my struggles and my weaknesses. So hypocrisy kills community. And what it is, it's because it's hypocrisy at its core, it's deceit. It's, it's lying, is what it is. Um, but let's think real quick. Just This is the interactive portion of our today's segment. Um, let's think really quick, just blunt, simple. What is a church, and what does it mean to be part of a church? So what is a church? Anyone? Do we have any takers? What, what's a church? Okay. It's the people. That is correct. Um, and that's, that's uncommon to hear an answer like that because we tend to talk about, are you going to church? Meaning, are you coming to this building for a service? Not true. We should totally erase that from our vocabulary. Um, we should call this our, our Sunday service. We could call it our, our worship gathering. This is not church, though. Church is God's people who come together to worship God, to hear from the word. But church is not a building. So good answer, Josiah. Um, number two, what does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ? What is someone who believes in Jesus? What do they believe? <clears throat> no, you can't go again. Anybody else? Absolutely. Amen. That's exactly what I was looking for. A believer in Jesus is someone who acknowledges their sin, right? We, we recognize we need a Savior, and we recognize that Jesus is that Savior, that he is the Son of God who, who died and was buried and three days later rose from the dead. That's what it means to be a believer. And if you're part of the church, a church, any local church, you ha- you're a believer in Christ. So to be a part of a church or to be a believer in Christ, you're, you're acknowledging certain things about yourself. Now, this is what one pastor said. He said, in Jesus, you admit that you are more wicked than you ever dared believe or admit. And at the same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus than you ever dared hope. That is each of ours' confession. That on our, on our own, in ourselves, we are more wicked than we ever dared to admit. But in Jesus, we're more loved and accepted than we could ever even imagine. And so, if, you're, if you call yourself a Christian, it, we live in a culture where most people call themselves Christians. That's, that's a historical thing. But if you call yourself a Christian, or if you call yourself a member of this church, it means you've signed off on that. You, you've signed off that you cannot save yourself. You are so messed up. The Son of God had to die if you would have any hope of salvation. That, that's what we sign off on when we call ourselves Christians. Um, and, and baptism, if you've been baptized, is actually a sign of that. It's publicly acknowledging that. And so when we think about that, hypocrisy doesn't only kill community. It's, it's not just a bad thing. It's a stupid thing. It, it doesn't make sense. If I call myself a Christian, I'm acknowledging that God himself had to die so that I could be righteous, so that I had a shot, so that I had hope. I'm acknowledging that I'm a mess. And so the question is, why when we come together, a bunch of people who have all signed off on this, why is there this pressure to perform? Why do we feel like I need to be fake and act like I've got it all together when I just admitted that 
I'm a train wreck and I needed Jesus to die in my place. Um, it, it, when you think about it in those terms, hypocrisy, it's, it's illogical. It doesn't even make sense. It's stupid. And, and so the fact of the matter is that we're all messed up and God loves us. That, that's who we are. We are a church full of redeemed sinners. We're, we're sinners who have a hope who, because of Jesus Christ. And day by day, day by day, he's changing us. He's making us more like Jesus. That's what it means to be part of the church. The whole point of this community, the, the community of believers, is to remind us of this message. It's to help us so that we learn to live out this new gospel identity. It, it, it's so that when I start to pretend, when I start to be fake or, or feel like I need to do this or do that to be accepted so that people will like me, it's so that Yemi or Brian or Carrie someone who's close enough to my life to see that I'm, I'm beginning to pretend can call me out and say, Larry, you don't got to do that. Like, you are messed up, yes, but you are loved in your sin. Jesus died so you could be made right. And, and so the whole point of this community is that we would be so closely knit, so involved in each other's lives that we are this transformative community where we, we see each other's sin, we see each other's mess, we love each other through it, and we're constantly pointing each other back to Jesus. That's the point. That's why this church exists. That's why we gather like this. And if you think about it, that's the kind of community we all want to be a part of. When things get quiet, when, like I read, when, when we're starting to feel that starved feeling, man, I, I want to be loved, but I can't let people know what I'm really like. When, when we start to feel that, can you just imagine what it'd be like to be completely known in all your filth and all your sin and to be loved anyways? Like that's, that kind of community is a, a city on a hill. That is a light to the world. That is something attractive that I want to be a part of, that people want to be a part of, that will draw people to Christ because it's only because this has already been accomplished in Jesus that we can live this out in our own lives. And so that's the thing. I I was going to talk a little bit about the next section with the widow. Um, just really briefly, the widow in this next section, beginning with chapter 21, she's commended. Um, I'll read it, and then I'm just going to say one thing about it, and then we'll wrap this up. It says this, Luke 21.1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He saw a poor widow putting two small copper coins, and he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The widow is commended. Jesus doesn't talk to widow that we know of. No one knows Jesus is commending her. But Jesus says, that's what you want to be like. Live, live like her. Why? Why was she commended? I think it's because she was genuine. As in contrast to the scribes just before, who were hypocrites and fake and only cared about the praise of men, this widow probably no one's going to notice her putting two small coins. These, these are like pennies. These are the smallest and least valuable coins that existed in Israel at that time. She puts in two of them. So not much at all. So probably no one's going to notice. And if anyone does, they won't think anything of it. They'll look at the rich guys throwing in loads of money. But Jesus says, be like the one who put in the two pennies. Be like her, because she was acting in genuine. She was acting genuine. Luke 12, this has come up again and again, says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And so in the widow, we see her heart because of her actions. We see her heart because though these two pennies are all she has to live on, she throws them into the jar, entrusting herself totally to the Lord. Genuine, not looking for the praise of men, doesn't know she's being praised by Jesus. She acted genuine, and so that's in contrast to the scribes. The scribes were rich before men, poor before God. The widow was poor before men, but rich before God. And so we're going to close. But remember, guys, in Christ, if you are in Jesus, if you have trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, to make you right with God, you measure up. Bottom line, underline it, bold it, you measure up. You've met the standard. You don't need to perform. You don't need to pretend like you can do it on your own. You measure up. It, it's a reality. It's a fact. And so there's no need to, for us to add anything to Jesus. There's no need for us to perform in a certain way. On top of what Jesus did, he did it all. It's finished. And there's no, no sense in us pretending like we don't need him. It, it's stupid for us to call ourselves Christians and to come together and pretend like we got it all together and we don't need a Savior because we all need a Savior and we have one. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll take communion and things. Jesus, thank you for what you did and for who you are. Thank you that in you we measure up. That though we were lost, we've been found. That though we were dead, we've been made alive. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a hope when we we had no hope. Thank you that we've been brought in and adopted as children of God because of what you've done. Lord, I pray for each one of us, for anyone here who's feeling this, this pressure to perform or pretend. Lord, I pray that you would make the gospel very real and tangible to them right now. That they would see that there is no need for them to do anything except throw themselves on Jesus. And I pray for us as a community, Lord, that this would be a mark of our lives, of our, our communal lives. That we would be people who are openly transparent, um, that quickly admit we need Jesus, um, and that rejoice, are filled with joy because we found Jesus because he came to us and he's redeemed us. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done. We love you, Lord. You are a great and awesome Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.